when we came back and won that game, that was like when the light switch flipped for us. It really was. Like to me, that was the moment where we all kind of galvanized together and went, wow, hey, we're, we're better than what we've shown. We can actually do this. And it just went like that. Everything came together. And when we came back to Syracuse, we were so good on home ice. And I have that moment forever ingrained in my head of Dumont scoring. I hadn't been part, I don't think, of an OT series clinching winner before. You don't forget those moments. Like I have chills thinking about it now. And there's there's some amazing pictures from that from that game to seeing the entire crowd on their feet or you know, us celebrating together. That's the stuff you live for, man. Like that's special. I don't care if that's a first round win or third round or even winning a championship. It's those moments that when you step away from the game, you'll never get again being on the ice for it. It's really special. Hi there. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucas Favalli. This is Crunch Chronicles. Great to be with you once again as we hit episode 26 of the show here this week. And we hope you've enjoyed the first 25 of them so far. Most recent guests including JP Cote, Matt Termina, Mike Angelitis, some wonderful guests on the show recently here on Crunch Chronicles. And we think you'll very much enjoy today's guest on the show, a player who didn't really spend a ton of time in Syracuse, but the short time he was with the Crunch made a serious impact here in the Salt City. We're talking about goaltender Mike McKenna, who was the goaltender for the Crunch during their run in 2017 to the Calder Cup Finals. Mike McKenna was brought into the organization toward the end of that season. He was acquired in a trade by the organization, brought in from Springfield, where he played the first 26 games of the season, and then was brought into the Crunch uh, in a trade that dealt Adam Wilcox to the Thunderbirds uh, that year. And so Mike McKenna came in and in the final stretch run of the season played 14 games and for Mike McKenna it was the first time he was really traded and so there was a lot of adjustment to be made he came in only posted a 5-5 and 3 record for the crunch in the regular season down the stretch he and Christers Gudlewski's battling for that number one position heading into the Calder Cup playoffs but the crunch had a really good team coming into the playoffs in 2017 a lot of great talent and Mike McKenna was at the end of the day, the number one goaltender when the playoffs rolled around in 2017. And for the first time in his lengthy career, he went on a very long playoff run, as we know that year. Played in all 22 playoff games for the Crunch. Went 13-9, and a 2.68 goals against average, and a 9-11 save percentage as he led the Crunch all the way to the Calder Cup Finals in 2017 before they came just a couple of wins shy in a series loss against the Grand Rapids Griffins, but a wonderful journey that season for the Crunch in the playoffs. Mike McKenna was such a big part of it. A couple of great moments throughout the course of that playoffs. He was stellar. He enjoyed his time with the Crunch. There's no doubt about it. Again, we said it. Wasn't here for very long, but the impact he made on and off the ice was lasting. He was a great person to have in Syracuse, a great person in general, a wonderful goaltender for the Crunch during the 2017 playoffs, and guest number 26 on Crunch Chronicles, it is goaltender Mike McKenna. Well, thanks, Lucas. It's good to catch up. Um, I am in my guest room closet, which is my memorabilia room, and if if you were able to look behind and maybe like right over my left shoulder, that's a, that's a row of helmets, so um, it's 
it seemed like the appropriate place. I didn't want to make my entire house uh, about me or my career. So the guest room closet is where all the jerseys and helmets hang out. And um, yeah, life is busy, man. Um, I retired from playing in 2019 and I think four months later found myself on TV with the Vegas Golden Knights as an analyst for them and did that for two years. I uh, have since returned home to St. Louis, which is where I grew up. And now I'm an 8U hockey coach. I'm a warrior hockey coach for our uh, veterans in St. Louis that play the game. Uh, awesome group there. And I work for Daily Faceoff now where I write podcasts, do a streaming live show twice a week, uh, doing some work with Sirius XM now hosting on air and being a guest. I tell you what, media is a different world, man. I, I, I always had a lot of different uh, tax returns from different states and entities. And now I've got them from different employers and independent contractors and you learn a lot of things that you didn't know while you were playing. Once you're done, you, you got to find how to get through life as a business and as an individual. So I've been busy, Lucas. <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds like it. I don't know where to start. You've you got the coaching going on. Uh, you're, you've been involved in the game, obviously, since you've retired. Yeah. How much how much has that been a joy for you to, to continue to remain in the game, even though you're not playing anymore? It's cool. I mean, I didn't necessarily expect to be able to do that when I finished playing. I, you know, if, if you would have asked me midway through my career, I played 14 seasons. If you would ask me seven, eight years into my career, I thought for sure I would use my economics degree from St. Lawrence. I'd probably be you know, managing money or wealth or the things that I interned for and expected to do. But after a while, I built up enough stock in the game that I realized I've got to at least see how I could stay involved. And I didn't really think coaching was the route I wanted to go. You know, goalie coaches, frankly, get hired and fired and they don't make the same kind of money that a head or an assistant coach does. And I just thought, I don't know that I need that stress. Maybe, maybe I can get something going in media. And I'd always enjoyed that aspect. You know, I wrote while I was playing for publications like InGoal Magazine, and then later on NHL.com had me write for them at the end of my pro career. And so that kind of got my name out there. But my Twitter account was really what got me going. I would live tweet games during playoffs and people started to realize, oh, wow, he enjoys this analyst stuff. And that's what really made it roll. So I, I had one opportunity on NHL Network about a 15 minute hit in St. Louis in front of what is now the enterprise center when the blues were on their run to the Stanley cup in 2019. And I killed it like that one hit. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't look at the camera once I was prepared, but that snowballed. And then next thing you know, I, I was with Vegas and I was getting opportunities. Um, and I, I think that it just, seemed like a natural progression for me and to be able to stay involved is, is great because it's my life's passion. Goaltending is still first, but hockey is right. There is a second. Okay. They're close. Fair. But goaltending <laughs> still takes the cake. I mean, anybody who tunes in for my analysis knows that I obviously lean goalie. That's what I know, but it's amazing to still be involved. Well, good. We'll definitely dovetail into all of that stuff. But before you know, we dive into it, I just want to ask how the family is. How's everyone doing there? I mean, we, I know again, you're only here for a short period, but you know, yeah. everyone made such an impact here in Syracuse, and and you know, the family connection. So, how's everyone doing in that in that regard? They're great. Yeah, they're great. You know, my daughters um, are when I was in Syracuse, they were two and five years old, and now we're. The youngest one is going to be turning six next week and the oldest one will be turning nine in May. And 
one of them's playing hockey in her second year. It'll be her third year after that. She's dabbling with goaltender, which her her mom doesn't like a lot because uh, she had to deal with me for all these years. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. But uh, the youngest one is in kindergarten and she's learning how to skate. And um, it's it's fun. You know, sometimes we look back at those pictures from Syracuse and really think, man, they were so little. But how important they were for that run. You know, even at that young age, when you have kids, it's it's special because they're they're a part of it. You know, and we had a lot of players with kids that year in Syracuse. So the family aspect was really important for us in playoffs. Mike McKenna, our guest here on Crunch Chronicles. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear that she's involved in the game now. Uh, uh, just wrapping up with the uh, the Olympics here in the women's final. The gold medal game was very entertaining last night as we record this. So I'm sure they weren't staying up for that last night. But did, did they get a chance to watch any of, uh, of that action? Or are they not at the age yet where they're really uh, as invested maybe in watching the women's game uh, at the Olympic level? It's funny because... My daughters really like their iPads. <laughs> That's what when Who they come home from right? school, you know, when they come from home from school, they they just want to decompress. And, you know, sometimes they'll watch a little bit of hockey with me, but it's not really their passion to, on television, like visually. Now, once they get on the ice, they love it. They want to play. They want to be out there and they like going to games in person. So like when the U.S. and Canada women's team was doing a tour of arenas in advance of the Olympics, that was something that interests my kids. And then there's Lindenwood Division One women's hockey here. They played Clarkson a few months ago. And I know the coaching staff on Clarkson, which it still pains me being a St. Lawrence Saint graduate that I have friends coaching Clarkson, but they're also St. Lawrence graduates. So we bridged that fine line. Um, but my daughters were enthralled with it to see, you know, 20 ponytails in a lineup, you know, out there at a high level. It kind of opened their eyes that, this is available and this can work for us. And we didn't watch the whole game, but we watched parts of the women's Olympics and, and they get a big kick out of it. It gives them something to shoot for, something to look forward to in life. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, it's great to, to know that they are, uh, that they've got that drive or at least that, 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 that side of things where they want to uh, continue to, to be involved in that regard. Mike McKenna here, our guest on Crunch Chronicles. Uh, Mike, we'll, we'll get back to what you're doing these days uh, later on, but we'll shift now to, to your time with the Crunch. Uh, which, as we've already alluded to, wasn't very long in terms, especially when you look at the the span of your career. You were only here for you know five months or whatever it might have ended up being from March through June. But uh, what an impact you made in over the course of what is now 28 seasons in, in, with the Crunch. I, I, I don't know if many people have made more of an impact in such a short time than you did, whether it was on and off the ice. When you look back to uh, that little stretch that you spent with the Crunch, you know, just a broad Broke general thoughts. What was uh, your experience like with the crunch? It was such a shock at first because I'd never been traded. I was my 12th year pro and I was already labeled as a suitcase, which was completely accurate. But my movement had just largely been up and down between American League team and NHL teams or early in my career between my ECHL team and the Las Vegas Wranglers and several American League teams. So being traded midseason and trying to do everything that goes along with it wasn't easy, man, packing up a, an entire condo in Enfield, Connecticut, and driving it in a couple shots to Syracuse, finding housing, moving into PL LeBlanc's place, and, and then eventually moving into a residence in, you know, it just, it was a lot. And our family kind of handled it well, because we had such a good support structure, especially having Eric Condra there, who had had kids as well, and um, the Conikers, and just 
a lot of people to support us and a team that really welcomed us from the top down. And I mean, from, I don't just mean the lightning. I don't mean Julian Brisebois and, and Ben grew and the coaching staff. I really mean Howard and Vance and Jim Sorosi and front office staff who went out of their way to make everything as simple for us as it could. And that was really appreciated. And I'd known Howard and Vance for a long time from going to Hilton Head with the Board of Governors meetings for the PHPA, the minor league union. And I always thought I'd love to play there. I love playing in Syracuse. And so that team just really had a lot of turnover leading up to playoffs. You know, when you look at that roster, there's players that I didn't play with that year that played significant amount of time. And so I think it took us a little bit to really find ourselves. You know, that first round we played against St. John's, uh, that may have been my best round, honestly, in the playoffs. And I know that I was a big part of getting us out of that until we kind of gelled as a team again, which was real because, and we had expectations, man. We were stacked, you know, like when you get Yanni Gord coming back down and, uh, you know, you've got so many players that frankly were right on the cusp, Slater Cuckoo and, uh, you know, Matt Taormina, who was a perennial American League All-Star, if not a, a defenseman of the year candidate every season. We knew we had to play, but I think we had fun. You know, as it started to go, we, we, I remember we had an Easter party where all the kids were hunting eggs and I made lamb and like, it just, it was, it was a good time. And I could sense that within that locker room, everybody was tight. We'd go out together. We'd have fun together. Uh, and that really matters. I played on so many teams that if teams don't get along off the ice, it's really hard to produce on the ice. And that's the biggest takeaway for me. Yeah, and it ended up being such a, a fun run that year in the playoffs. And we'll certainly dive into that a little bit more. But you mentioned the the transition for you uh, when you get traded and, and you know, how much of an adjustment it is, especially with a family and especially with uh, finding places to live and then try to find your way on the ice, too, when you're, you know, you've got a new, I, I don't know if it's a new system necessarily that as a goalie you have to learn, but obviously there's communication you have to figure out with your defenseman and, and how the team in front of you is playing. What you know, what is that whole transition like for you midseason to to be in a new organization? And uh, and like you said, with a team that had a lot of expectations at that point. My ace in the hole was goalie coach David Alexander. We'd never worked together before, but I'd had a really healthy respect for him within hockey circles. I, I knew his path. I knew people that had skated with him. Uh, Jake Allen was one of my close friends from when we played together in Peoria and he'd worked with David for a long time previously. And I'd heard nothing but great things. And I walked in and it was like, man, we're on the same page. And it was awesome because I'm like, I'm so analytical about goaltending. I really had to coach myself for a lot of my career. And I saw my own vision of the position and how to approach it reflected in what David did. And I thought, this is good. This is really going to help because realistically, like I, I need things for my defenseman, right? Like I, I need them to get to, in position for when I'm going to pass them the puck. I need them to stay on one side when we're killing penalties. Like there's things that are kind of non-negotiables for myself. And I think when you get to later in your career as a goaltender, you can carry that weight. But the factor that made this more difficult was that you know, I showed up and I was supposed to be the goalie that could play a lot, but that wasn't a foregone conclusion. I mean, Christos Gudleskis had previously been an all-star. He'd carried the mail for the team. Like I still needed to, to earn that right, but we were very different goaltenders. So I knew that was going to be a bit of a challenge, uh, but I really had to work on making sure that I communicated as much as possible with my teammates into what 
I thought could be best for us working together in an environment, not me being an autocrat, not me telling them you have to do this. It was, Hey, if we can accomplish this together, we're going to work best. We're going to get out of our zone quicker. We're going to allow less shots. It'll work. And it took a bit of time, but we got there and I got there because it took me a little bit. I wasn't great off the start when I first showed up. <laughs> so it was an adjustment period. And I remember Julian Breesbaugh grabbed me off the bus coming back from Binghamton. And I had allowed a terrible goal in the third period where they shot from the wing, short side. And I was mad. And I remember he came up to me and he goes, Mike, you can carry us. If you got to fake it, fake it till you make it. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> it was like this, this blast of confidence in me though, that, all right, man, they, they believe in me and he's right. Like, even if I'm not feeling my best, if I'm not playing my best, carry myself like I am. Cause that was important. You didn't want to look defeated in front of your teammates. So you combine all that stuff up. And I think that's kind of what led to the run that we went on. Yeah, it certainly uh, you could tell the confidence level and everyone started to rise as that uh, that run began. Uh, I want to take a, a sidebar here. You mentioned David Alexander and, and goalie coaches. I know. I mean, you had had such a lengthy career, that position, that that role has really evolved in terms of goaltenders at the minor league level and how much how much coaching is involved now these days, as opposed to what it was when when your career started and and how that has benefited goaltenders, you know, now and, and then down the line as well when they get to the NHL or goalies at this level in the future? Oh, it's changed immensely. Um, when I first started, it just didn't exist that you would have full-time goalie coaching in the American Hockey League, much less the ECHL. I mean, I started in the ECHL. Like, dude, you're lucky you had one and a half coaches on the bench. You know what I mean? Like you, you had your head coach, maybe you had an assistant. It was different. And I don't think I had a full-time goalie coach in season until maybe 20, either 2013 or 2014. When I was in Portland with the Pirates in would have been the Panthers organization the first year with Alfie Michaud as my, as the goalie coach there. That was the first time I was like, I was almost 30 years old. So you can imagine players like always like myself that lasted as long as we did, even at the minor league level, which frankly, like not many, you know, I mean, from my era, Michael Layton, myself, Jan Dani, you know, a couple other relics you can mix in there. We had to, we had to really teach ourselves. We had to look inward to be that, to last that long. Whereas now, Man, if a goal, if a team doesn't have an NHL goalie coach, a development goalie coach that's dedicated to the American League and probably the ECHL as well, they're way behind. And now most teams have added a third layer of somebody that's either the director of goaltending overarching everything or below that having a goalie scout slash roving coach. So a lot of teams now are employing three people minimum for their goalie uh, departments. And that's what it should have been. I mean, David Alexander had been trying to build that out forever, that this is what we need. He was a visionary. But people are finally understanding. If you want to win the Stanley Cup, you need to develop a goalie from within because you have cost certainty under the salary cap and you have a goalie that's come up within your system and you're going to get him in his prime years. It's, ne- it's non-negotiable. So finally, teams are investing in it. But man, when I started... <laughs> All I, I didn't even have YouTube. All I had were NHL games to watch because it was 2005 in college, 2001 to five. I didn't have YouTube to watch. It was whatever I could get from the television set. 
Boy, times have certainly changed. <laughs> and I think for the better, for sure, for goaltenders uh, as we yep. continue to move ahead. Mike McKenna, our guest here on, on Crunch Chronicles. Uh, we'll start to, I guess, shift our focus to that playoff run, of course, because, I mean, that, uh, as you said, Julian Brisebois said, you were here to carry this team and and into the playoffs you guys go. And and what a fun run it was. I mean, you, you clinched that division in the final uh, day of the regular season or the final weekend of the regular season and, and get uh, – a very difficult first round opponent, a team that, you know, you have the higher seed, but you go on the road for the first two games against St. John's, you lose game one, game two was razor thin. It ends up in double overtime. I mean, I'm sure the whole, the whole playoff run could have derailed right there, but what a series to get through it in what was a tight one. And there's the photo behind me of Gabriel Dumont scoring the, uh, the overtime game winner in game four to clinch it. But that was uh, a heck of a series and a tough one to get through. I thought we were done in St. John's, you know, like we lost the first game and then the second game we were down three to one. I believe we scored twice with them, with me pulled on the bench. Like that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> you, might, you might get one, not two. And I thought, geez, we're, this is it, man. We're going to have a, have a hell of a time coming back from a two, nothing hole. And, and St. John's was actually pretty good that year. Charlie Lindgren was in net. Um, you know, they had, who Dom was playing very good up front for them. They had, they had Michael McCarron who's with uh, the Nashville predators now playing a big part with them. Like that was a pretty good club. And man, when we came back and won that game, that was like when the light switch flipped for us. It really was like, to me, that was the moment where we all kind of galvanized together and went, wow, Hey, we're, we're better than what we've shown. We can actually do this. And it just went like that. Everything came together. And when we came back to Syracuse, we were so good on home ice. And I have that moment forever ingrained in my head of Dumont scoring. I hadn't been part, I don't think, of an OT series clinching winner before. You don't forget those moments. Like, I have chills thinking about it now. And there's, there's some amazing pictures from that, from that game to seeing the entire crowd on their feet, or, you know, us celebrating together. That's the stuff you live for, man. Like, that's special. I don't care if that's a first-round win or third round, or even winning a championship. It's those moments that when you step away from the game, you'll never get again, being on the ice for it. It's really special. Yeah. I mean, just the, the energy in the building too, with that goal, like you said, was just remarkable. And uh, one of the great moments in crunch history, at least in playoff moments, uh, overtime game winner for Gabriel Dumont. So you win that first round series in four games, and then it's uh, the old foe, the Toronto Marlies, who, I mean, at that time, uh, the, for that year and the next couple of years, the crunch of the Marlies are going back and forth. But uh, that second round series in North Division finals, seven games, the home team wins all seven of them. It was two, maybe the two best teams in the league outside of Grand Rapids in the finals. But those are those are the two elite teams going at it for seven games. Yeah, for sure. And I felt the pressure in that series because the Marlies are – Listen, man, they got a roster that's probably got twice the salary everybody else in the league a lot of times, especially back then. I don't think it's quite the same, but they could chuck around the cash because they could, and they had a lot of people in their lineup. And they had good young talent, too. It wasn't just veteran players. It was a nice mix. A lot of them are Toronto Maple Leafs now. And I got to tell you, man, that series, I didn't know how it was going to go. And I think I think in Game 7, we even got down 3-1 at one point. I don't think it was three, nothing, but I think it was three to one and midway through the second period, because I remember that third goal going in and just feeling the letdown going, Oh, man, this might be it. We've played so well. We've been close. Like, and I didn't think I was great that series. Like I thought I was okay. 
And, but I remember after that third goal went in, I, I made a save, I think on a two on one pretty shortly after that. And I think we scored almost right away. And then Corey Conacher took over. If I remember right, if you got the stat sheet in front of you, you can confirm it for me, but I'm pretty sure it was Conacher who just put that game on his shoulders and took it over and said, we're not losing this thing. And then we came back and just throttled him from that point. Like, I think I had like five or eight shots total after the three had gone in and we waxed them. <laughs> and I just thought, this is, this is real dude. Like we're, we're, I can't believe it. I thought we were done again. You know, so we, so we have, we had had several moments of real adversity, like St. John's real adversity, second game, seven game series against what I thought was the best team in the league in Toronto, big time adversity. And we powered through it. We found ways to win, you know, players like time again, un, just unheralded and how important he was to us. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the funniest part of it though, is we knew if we won the game, we were turning around and going to Providence like next right. day. <laughs> and, and my lease was up at the next day. So I had to get out of the apartment and move into, I put things in a storage shed and into a residence in at like seven in the morning, Daniel Walcott shows up at the pickup truck to get all this stuff from the place I was running for PL LeBlanc. Move it into a storage shed, move into a residence in, see you later, wife and kids. I'm going to Providence. <laughs> and just, I just made the bus. It was the most hectic, awful, amazing 12 hours. Cause just super, super high from winning this game. And then the instant dread of, oh my God, we've got to pack an entire apartment. Cause we didn't know if we were going to be here or not. We didn't know if we were going home or not. Now we're moving on. And now we're going to Providence, moving into a hotel. <laughs> So. I can't imagine that. Like, what a headache. What a I, I don't tough. know how you yeah. are able to compartmentalize all of that in the course of everything and and keep, you know, keep playing well on the ice and yeah. then worrying about that off the ice. That's amazing. Well, and then we clobbered Providence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like we just waxed those dudes. And I thought I, I thought it was going to be a good series because to me, Providence, Providence always had a pretty good identity. They played hard. They were tough to knock out. And I can't remember who they played in the second round but it clearly took a lot out of them because they looked like they were just gassed when they got to us. They didn't have energy. We'd get late to games and, and we'd roll. And I, I can't remember which game we lost in the series, but it was a pretty foregone conclusion. I thought that we were going to handily beat that team. And that was probably the best series I had, maybe even more so than St. John's. Like we scored a lot and we rolled them, but man, like, I can still remember making a couple saves in the final minutes of the last game and just laughing, thinking, man, I'm so on it that they just are hitting me. I'm not even in great position and I'm making these saves. Um, and I also remember pulling my groin right at the end of the Toronto series. I forgot about that. Oh so boy. I had, <laughs> yeah, I had a pulled, I think that was, it might've been game six of the Toronto series. I pulled my groin like with 10 seconds left on a routine shot. And I remember I got off the ice, went right in the trainer's office. Poppy is in there and Poppy is like, the magician from Tampa Bay. This guy does everything from massage to stim. And that guy had acupuncture in my groin with stim machine hooked up to it within like 10 minutes of getting off the ice. And it was close to home base, dude. This was excruciating <laughs> stuff. And, uh, but yeah, it just maintained that. And we, we just rolled Providence, man. Like that was crazy to us how kind of easy it seemed to get past them.
Yeah, it was a pretty convincing series win in that that conference final for the Crunch. Going back to Game Seven, it was uh, Conacher had a goal and an assist. You're right; it was uh, a nice little comeback, and it was Matthew Pekka who scored eight seconds That's into right. the third period. It was three three going into the third, and bam, you come out of the gates and you get that uh, that go ahead goal, which I'm sure was a big uh, boost for everyone moving forward. But uh, yeah, so y- you go through Providence, and it ends up with Grand Rapids, a team that had uh, already faced the Crunch in the final only a couple of years before it. Uh, another really entertaining series. Obviously, it didn't go the way that uh, Crunch fans were hoping for, you were hoping for, but what you know, what sticks out to you from, from that final against Grand Rapids? More than anything, and I had this conversation this summer, uh, I was driving to a wedding in Ohio, and I stopped in at Kevin Lynch's place in Indianapolis, Indiana, and, and we're still friends, and, and it's stay in touch. And I told him, I said, man, if you would have scored in double overtime of game, I think it was game two in Grand Rapids, I want to say. And I believe it was double overtime. And Jared Corot just got his toe on the puck. And, and Lynch, he just, I mean, he did everything right. It was no fault to him. It was just a great save and a great and a huge moment. I truly believe if, if, if that goal goes in, if that shot goes in, we come back to Syracuse 1-1 in the series, we win. I just, I truly believe that because we, again, we were just, we were so good at home. I don't feel like we would have lost it because um, it was such an even series. And I know it went six games, which isn't always indicative of the closest series, but it just, it felt like either team could have won that. And it was, it was bitter. I mean, like Bertuzzi and Callahan versus Conacher and, and other dudes in our club that didn't mind ratting it up. You know, it was, it was spirited hockey. And, but we knew that from the beginning, it was like, man, we can't get sucked into that. You know, we, we just, we can't let our emotions get the best of us. And it happened a couple of times and we ended shorthanded and they made us pay. Like their power play was good. Martin Furk can shoot the puck harder than anybody on the planet. Tomas Nosek was a huge piece of that team. Uh, I thought he was their best player, even better than Bertuzzi, most all around player. He's had a great NHL career since. Um, yeah, it just, man, it sucked like losing that, you know, like game six, especially because it felt like we just had more to give, you know, we weren't there. And even, you know, my next year, I went to the stars organization and went to the finals again, that game that went to game seven against the Marlies where we lost I lost two years in a row, but that felt final. It did not feel final for us with the crunch because we knew that we had the team to win it. And it was just maybe one or two bounces here or there that we just didn't get. So I look back on it and I think it was an amazing place to play. It was an amazing series to be a part of, but it stung for a really long time. And I mean, it still does, but boy, those first couple of months after every time I'd see the highlights from the American league, it just, Oh, I had to turn it off. It just, it hurt. I didn't want to watch it anymore. <laughs> I, I could, I can understand why for sure from your perspective, but uh, uh, it's such a great playoff run. There's no doubt. And, and, you know, you talk about playing here and, and in this community and, and just the support that, you know, we've seen it before in the playoffs and you were here, you were obviously played as an opponent here forever. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what it was like to be an opponent, but on the, on the positive side with the fans here, and especially as the playoffs progress, the crowd's, Big at the start, get even bigger by the end of it where there's sellouts, it's overflow, it's over 6,000 people in the building. What was it like? And you said how good this team was at home during the playoffs, and that was a big part of it for sure. What was that experience like playing on the good side of things here in Syracuse? It was amazing. Like Syracuse was always my favorite building on the road. And everybody thought I was crazy 
because it's not glamorous. It's not brand new. The visiting room has one and a half shower heads that work well. Like, but I just have an affinity for these old buildings where the fans are right on top of you. It's, it's more pure to me. And you could look at my career numbers in Syracuse and I don't know why, but they were really good. Like it was one of those rinks where I just dominated it. And I remember talking to David Alexander and him, that was a big reason for it was, man, it's like every time it's McKenna, he's played well against us every time. And you just like places sometimes. And I liked it there. And I remember that playoff run where we were adding seats to the stage because we had to sell more. We, if we could sell them, we were putting them in the building. And it was amazing. I mean, dude, it was louder than Motorhead. Like, I think we hit like 116 decibels or something at one point. And I, I won't forget that. That rink is truly the one of the loudest, if not the loudest I've ever played in. And I know that carried us. And it just was so cool to see the whole city get on board, man. Like I, I would walk home. I was at the residence in downtown. So I'd walk from the rink to there and you'd see the, the posters and the, the banners up in every window. And you could feel that sense of community. And I don't know, to me, that's important. Maybe some players just don't care, but I really like that. My brother-in-law was, lives in Syracuse, you know, so we had that connection. It just, it felt really good. And it felt like, it felt like it was right. And that's, it carried us, man. Like fans make a difference. They really do because you all want to, at the end of the whole thing, you just want to have that big parade and celebrate with everybody. There's no doubt about that. Uh, living in Syracuse, you know, it was short lived, obviously. But, um, you know, what was what did you enjoy about the city itself while you got a chance to experience it as a, a resident for a couple months? Well, I, I know everybody will just say all oh, the snow. Well, I don't mind snow a bit. Um, I actually think that Syracuse is kind of a, a sleeper city in some ways that there's an awful lot more going on than people realize, um, especially in the downtown area. Um, that little. Um, the little area that's right around possibilities. Yeah, Armory Square. Yep. The Armory Square. Thank you. Yeah. It's shows you how many places I've been in my life. But like <laughs> I, I just I think Armory Square is super cool, man. And even the downtown has little pockets that are fun. And and having Syracuse University on in the city makes a big difference. There's there's a lot more going on than people realize. And like I said, it having my brother-in-law there really made it cool, especially for my wife. You know, it gave her a chance to to see your family often. Uh, and even my in-laws who are in Glens Falls, New York, they could come see us whenever. So that was really cool. And I just like, I kind of like the, the, the river walk area. I, I don't know if that's what it's called. I can't remember. But uh, the, the creek walk. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the pathways along there, we'd take our dog for walks and I just, I don't know, man, it just was a cool time in my life. We'd go to the park and hang out and my kids would play on the playground and just be totally sociable suburbanites, you know, over in Liverpool, like there's a lot more in Syracuse than people realize once the snow melts. And even once the snow is there, it's the stuff's still going on. You just got to be willing to go out. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. You just got to brave it a little bit, but it's not too bad once you get used to it. Mike McKenna, our guest here on Crunch Chronicles. Mike, we don't want to hold you too much longer. Uh, we could do this forever, of course, but is there anything else you want to, uh, to add about your time with the Crunch or a final thought about your time in Syracuse? Well, I just, I wish it could have continued. I really do. And I know that um, people may not always be truthful when they talk about contracts and other things. And I desperately wanted to come back after that. I felt like we had unfinished business and, you know, I, I didn't get the chance, 
Um, unfortunately, the the team went another direction, but I'll never hold that against them because they were so professional about it. And, you know, I've spoke about Julian Breezeball a couple of times and Julian called me and said, well, Mike, you know, we're going to go a different direction, but we really appreciate everything. And if somebody chooses to make that decision, I will I can never hold that against them. I appreciated him calling me and telling me firsthand, um, but it was a really big bummer. You know, I, I really wanted that second go at it. And ultimately it led to me going to Texas the next year and probably having the best season of my career in a city that I loved, but um, I really wanted to be there again. And I, and I wish I could have, but I'm just, I'm really thankful. I at least got the time I did. And we had such a special run and it's a, it's a team and a city and an organization that, Hey, I, you can see, I still, I have the hat and the, and I have this zip up and the Jersey. I don't do that for all organizations. Not all of them treated me well enough to warrant me wanting to keep things like that and be proud of wearing it. Um, Syracuse is much like that. And again, that's, that's Vance, that's Howard, that's Jim Cerosi. I mean, they gave me a street, you know, those big signs that go up next to street lamps on the road, you know, yeah, like the, yeah. I got they, one of those hanging in my garage and that's the coolest <laughs> thing. Cause I'm, I'd never been on one of those before and there I was and they let me keep one and man, that stuff matters. It's just, it's really cool. Those are fun moments of careers that are fun to look back on. I thought you weren't taking up the whole house with all your, uh, your knickknacks, I guess. that well, one... the, garage, the garage is mine. <laughs> oh, garage dude, that was great. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I got, I have other stuff out in the garage, but it's mostly just posters and <laughs> fair enough. I'm well, not my... hanging the helmets in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we let you run, I know you're, you're all over the place. Where, where can people follow along with what you're doing and uh, keep up with Mike McKenna these days? Yeah. Easiest things just through the socials. Um, I'm at Mike McKenna 56 on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram's probably is more, it's more personal posts, but I also post a lot of the things that I'm up to in media to my stories to try to keep people updated on what may be coming throughout that day. Um, I'm usually on Sirius XM in the afternoons on Friday for the discussion room with Steve Coolius. Um, that's typically five to six o'clock Eastern time. It can vary. I've done a bit of hosting as well on XM, but I try to keep everybody updated through my social. So if you go to at Mike McKenna 56, especially on Twitter, that's, that's generally got a nice overview of it. And if you're ever in the St. Louis area, you will probably catch me at an amateur hockey rink because I'm there. <laughs> All the time, it feels like, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, good. That is wonderful to hear. Mike McKenna, we appreciate your time here on Crunch Chronicles this week. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, it was great catching up with you, and uh, hopefully some point down the line here, we can get you back in Syracuse and see you here uh, at a Crunch game at some point soon. That sounds phenomenal. I would love to walk back in. That'd be a great time. Thanks for having me. Well, there he is, Mike McKenna, former goaltender for the Syracuse Crunch, someone who spent so many years in the American Hockey League playing in so many different cities and organizations. And while he will probably not be remembered when you look back at his career for his time with the Crunch, because, again, it was only really in the grand scheme of things in what was a lengthy career, only a few months, they were very impactful for him and for the city and for the organization as the team went on a very long playoff run in 2017. And have no mistake about it, that was definitely a run that fueled some players heading up to Tampa Bay and eventually led to a couple of Stanley Cup championships for the Tampa Bay Lightning, a couple of the key contributors on that 2017 
finalist team for the Crunch, making big impacts for Tampa Bay in their back-to-back championships a couple of years later. But Mike McKenna was the goaltender on that team for the Crunch, and as we said, only played in 14 regular season games in Syracuse, five wins, uh, five losses, and three games decided in overtime that he lost by 5-3 and three record. But the playoffs is where he really started to find his game as the Crunch as a team, found their game, 22 games and a 13-9 record. He went to back-to-back finals, in fact, did Mike McKenna. He would go back to the finals in 2018 with the Texas Stars. You heard him talking about it on Crunch Chronicles just a moment ago, how he really wished he could return to Syracuse in the 2017-18 season as well. But the organization went in a different direction, so he ended up with the Stars organization and led Texas to Game 7 of the Calder Cup Finals before losing to the Toronto Mar- So Mike McKenna, one of the great goaltenders in AHL history, and he will, I think, very much fondly remember his time in Syracuse, albeit brief, very important time in his career and in the grand scheme of the organization here for the crunch so we appreciate mike mckenna joining us here today you heard where you can listen to him find him follow along he is very active on social media he is a great presence in the media these days so hope you follow mike mckenna as he continues his path in hockey on the other side of things where we are these days in the media but thanks again to mike mckenna for joining us this week if you have any stories about mike mckenna again i've said it a couple of times he wasn't here long but man did he make a great impact and boy, do the fans uh, really take to him when he came into the crunch and the way he led that team on the run. If you have a story about him or with him, you can share it here uh, by contacting me on Twitter at Lucas Favalli or via email lfavalli at syracusecrunch.com. Episode 25 of Crunch Chronicles was last week. That was Matt Termina. We had a little uh, story to share. Uh, Nancy reached out on Twitter, said she loved the conversation we had with uh, with Matt Termina. Loved when he was here in Syracuse and especially loved the, uh, the lip sync videos back in the day. That season in 2016-17, there was really some great ones. Loved uh, that Matt Termina participated with Daniel Walcott and the rest of the team that year. And uh, so she just wanted to pass that message along. And Nancy, we know. We, we know they were so popular we loved them they were very entertaining uh we'll see if at some point down the line we get another uh, another crop of crunch players and those lip sync videos but he was great matt termito was so funny in those and uh the rest of the team was as well those were a lot of fun uh, a few years ago but thanks for sharing that and we're glad you enjoyed the conversation last week with matt termito So that'll do it for us this week on Crunch Chronicles, episode 26 in the books. Thanks again to Mike McKenna for joining us here this week. For all of us with the Syracuse Crunch, I'm Lucas Favalli saying so long for now. We'll be back next week with another episode of Crunch Chronicles.